Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tests and tragedies. Congress nearing a deal on more support as 40,000 U.S. lives are lost to COVID-19. Germany getting going. Europe's biggest economy begins the restart and crude collapses. U.S. oil hits a 21-year low as demand drops and storage fills. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the world. I hope you all managed a safe and restful weekend. Some truly devastating news, as you heard there, and our hearts go out to all those affected. But also at the same time, some encouraging news for you on the show today too, and this morning from all around the world. We'll begin in New York. Governor Cuomo said hospitalization numbers continue to fall. Other states have flattened the curve too. As I mentioned as well in Germany, just the latest country to begin the gradual process of reopening. But of course, the conversation all around the world too comes back to testing and tracing capabilities. That's the thread that we will be following throughout this week for you. More work required on this. On Wall Street, meanwhile, futures are lower. This after a second straight week of gains for U.S. stocks. In fact, that's the first time that we've seen that since February. You guys know my views. Stock markets do not represent or reflect economies, especially when central banks like the Federal Reserve are splashing the cash to the sum of trillions of dollars. The best gauge I can give you for that, and you're looking at it, the small cap stocks are down some 26% year to date. Meanwhile, if you take a look at the tech heavy NASDAQ, that's down less than 4% for the year. This week, tech giants IBM and Netflix will report guidance, as always, with all of these companies, not just the tech sector will be key. But Netflix, of course, is one of the leading stay-at-home stocks. They've actually gained more than 30% so far this year. Wow. To Asia now, where China cut its benchmark lending rates yet again today. This, of course, following Friday's dismal growth numbers, support remains key for their economy too. And, of course, that will have an impact on the performance of the rest of the world as well. Let's get to the drivers because we start there. But in the United States too, the White House says a deal to replenish relief funds, mainly for small businesses, could be announced as soon as today. Details are still being hammered out. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, not a moment too soon quite frankly, for the small businesses here in the United States. The compromise here is money for testing, it seems, and for hospitals, but billions of dollars, and perhaps some set aside too for some of the underrepresented businesses as well in the United States. 
Yeah, there's this feeling that this process has just been very quick, of course, just a couple mm. of weeks, uh, all this money going out the door. But also there's this real frustration that this was a system that uh, a bailout really that favored companies that already had existing relationships with their banks, already had lines of credit and also favored some big companies. There are about a dozen, uh, a dozen big restaurant companies or hotel companies, um, some of them public, right, who have access to other forms of capital that were tapping this PPP program while mom and pop uh, locations were left out in the cold. So the money is good and necessary and needed now, today, right? Yesterday in some cases, because so many of these small businesses, frankly, just don't have any money left in the bank to pay their bills and they need this, uh, they need this money immediately. Restaurant sector is an interesting one. The small businesses there, as you and I have discussed in the past, an average of 16 days of cash, and we're yeah. already more than a month into this shutdown. How is that supposed to work? It doesn't. And yet, to your point, big, big chain restaurants like Shake Shack coming out over the weekend and saying, look, we got the money, we're giving it back, our workers need it, others need it more. Look, I mean, there was a lot of, I would say, rage from some corners that mm. some and, and there are also, you know, hedge funds, hedge companies owned by hedge funds that were tapping into these small business loans while small business owners were, were left uh, sort of in the dark. So that really was an optic, I think, that they need to try to figure out how to avoid here uh, going forward for this next next round. The devil's in the details, as they always say, we're seeing what the top line numbers are. There is a political will, of course, Julia, to get this done. But you want to make sure this is not tilted again to the maybe financially plugged in companies and not to the real Main Street companies who need this. This is survival. Yeah, when I was hearing about what the contours of this program were last week, the suggestion was there were going to be no conditions attached. Then came the Small Business Administration's details of the, how the money was given out over a quarter of this money going to just 2% of businesses and you get the sense that everyone went, okay, some money here must be set aside for the smaller banks, perhaps the online lenders too, that can get to the smallest businesses. To be fair, they've got to get the money out there. They've never, yeah. never put, pushed this much money out the door in so short a time. So there are bound to be hiccups. But you just want this fundamental feeling of fairness, right? That, that Main Street gets a fair shake here and there's access to this money. Remember, if they, if they use this money to pay 75% of this money to pay their payrolls, it's free money. And that's so important to these companies. Yeah, it is. Absolute lifeline. Christine Romans, thank you for that. Also here in the United States, the federal government clashing with states over testing capacity. President Trump says there's enough testing to reopen the economy, but many governors are saying that's simply not true. John Howard is live in Washington for us, John. That we were talking last week, some hope of perhaps galvanizing a national effort to coordinating testing, but we're still down to a he said, she said, he said between the White House and the individual states, and none of these numbers tie up to what's required. We are, Julia, though there are some, some glimmers of progress. You gotta make a distinction between what President Trump says and what he does. He's saying, it's up to the states. He's protecting himself against uh, uh, charges of, of uh, uh, mismanaging in case it doesn't work out as states try to roll out testing. But he has uh, tentatively agreed with the House Democrats, his administration has, to add $25 billion for testing uh, ramp up uh, in the uh, small business plan that they're negotiating right now. So that's positive. Secondly, last night, President Trump announced he's going to use the Defense Production Act to 
uh, direct the production of swabs, which are one of the key testing components. The president has been resisting that step before. Uh, so this is a small step. There, there are many other things he could do, but it's an indication that he was feeling the pressure from those governors and responded to it. We'll see if uh, we get similar action on things like reagents and uh, test kits and other uh, elements of the supply chain. And I completely agree with you that there are glimmers of hope here, John, but the idea that $25 billion for this is enough, we've had experts on this show saying 10 times that, particularly when you compare to the economic damage that's being wrought and the necessity to get the economy going again, testing is everything. Far more money should be pushed towards that. And I have to say, I, I think that's a fair point too. No, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. But remember, the administration initially was resisting anything but small business money in that package. And uh, uh, they have resisted using the DPA. Now, uh, what you hear from Democrats and some governors is that he needs a full mobilization of the uh, Defense Production Act, something like a pandemic testing board at a national level to get tests to all of the places that they're needed sooner. Uh, he is not willing to do that. Uh, so uh, there, there is a big gap between the need and what he's uh, uh, agreed to do. But there are baby steps in the direction of what we need to do. Yeah, you're right. And we should uh, acknowledge each one of those steps, John. But you and I will fight for that pandemic testing board because I think that's probably what's required here. John Harwood, sir, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us with the latest from D.C. there. Now to Europe, where some countries begin to loosen virus lockdown restrictions this week. In Norway, children return to kindergarten. Parks and forests in Poland are no longer off limits. And in the Czech Republic, they have reopened some shops too. Leading the way, however, it seems, is Germany. Europe's biggest economy, the country's chancellor, will give a press conference in around half an hour's time as a broad swathe of businesses from car dealers to bookstores return to work. Fred Pleitgen joins us now on this. Fred, I bring in the conversation I was just having with John there. Fantastic to get the economy moving again and, and get these businesses back to work. Mm. But how is that being managed with testing and controlling and making sure that we don't see a further spike in yeah. cases once again? Well, you know what, that, that is really the big issue, and that's also something mm. that the Germans are talking about. And I think that Angela Merkel is also going to be talking about as well uh, in that press statement that uh, we believe is coming up in about 20 minutes. Essentially what the Germans are saying, look, we're able to open up because so far the mass testing that's been conducted here in this country, also, quite frankly, the discipline uh, of the people here in this country in keeping with that social, that physical distancing, that has really helped to bring the new amount of corona cases down, and that is why they're able to do uh, some of the loosening that you're seeing now. I don't know if you can see... Behind me, there are actually a lot of people here in this pedestrian zone right now as these shops are able to open for the first time. And they say they're absolutely happy to be able to get out of the house again. They're absolutely happy to be going to stores that are actually open. And we talked to some store owners who said it was a disaster when their shops were closed, even though they got government aid. Everybody here very happy with this. But Angela Merkel has been saying, look, people, don't get careless. This can all go in the wrong direction very, very quickly. She said the gains that have been made so far have been fragile. And while some of the measures have been loosened, some of the restrictions have been eased, she says people really have to watch out, keep that social distancing going. And it's quite interesting, Julia, to see here in Germany, because there's some states like up in the north where I am right now um, who are, um, are, are fairly lenient in the way that they're opening things. But there's some other states, like, for instance, Bavaria, like, for instance, Saxony, who are now making it mandatory for people 
in a place like this to be wearing masks. That's something that you have to do if you want to go into these small stores, if you want to go on public transport. So it's differences in how that's being handled. But I can tell you the German government, the state governments here are keeping an absolutely close and watchful eye on the amount of new corona cases to see whether or not there is a spike as a result of what you're seeing behind me right now with many more people here on the streets and going into yeah. shops, Julia. Two observations, and I was just watching while you were talking there. You have a lot of people behind you, as you mentioned. A lot of people there, too, not wearing those masks. So just as you mm. were mentioning the different areas, do the number of people that are wearing masks and perhaps how stringent the um, state authorities are being depend on how high the cases were in those regions? Because yeah. actually, I'm surprised mm. by what I'm seeing behind you. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it is it is a bit surprising to sometimes see. But one of the things that people are saying, look, they're trying to keep their social distancing. They say if they keep six feet apart, they think that that, that it's going to be fine. That's going to be OK. And to be fair, there are also a lot of people who are going out who are voluntarily wearing these masks. But you are right. By far, uh, it is not most people who are out here. And at the same time, um, this amount of people wearing masks is about what we saw before, before the stores were opened. And there you did see the cases, the amount of new corona cases decrease and go down. So that's really the thing that the government now is watching out for. If they now open it up uh, without making people wear masks, and there is a guideline by the German government, by the way, they're telling people, we do highly recommend that you wear a mask if you go into a public place and you go into a store, but they have not made it mandatory yet. And the reason why they did that, uh, Julia, is because they say that so far people have been so disciplined in the social distancing and keeping uh, their distance from other people that it hasn't been necessary so far. But that's also something they're keeping an eye on, whether or not you might see a blanket order in Germany to right. wear masks in public places, certainly when going going into stores and going to public plans were really interesting yeah. situation here. It really is. It's, it's going to be a sort of day by day, isn't it? And we just see how you need to calibrate that. Yep. It'll be interesting to see what uh, the Chancellor says later this morning. Fred, great to have you with us. Fred Plankin there for us in Germany. Now, the price of U.S. crude has crashed to its lowest level in 21 years. West Texas Intermediate trading close to 40% lower, plunging well below $12 a barrel. Wow, look at that. John Defterius is with us. John, this is what capitulation looks like. As you and I were discussing, we, we saw the supply cuts. We knew they weren't enough. Now storage capacity is filling up and there's very little demand out there. This is reflecting that all those things. Yeah, especially in the United States, uh, yeah. uh, Julian, I think this last leg down is exposing the, uh, the U.S. Uh, vulnerabilities, particularly when it comes to storage right now. Uh, we have about a half a billion barrels of extra production and the oil hotels, if you will, are running out of vacancy. They have about a month until uh, that happens. And we have to remind our viewers, uh, you know, for WTI, we were $68, $66 a barrel in January because of the Iranian tensions. And then the pandemic has just knocked the legs out here. And this is accentuated because the contract expires for WTI tomorrow and we see the forward contract up about six to eight dollars above the current level but you can't argue with the 40 percent correction also this IEA report that came out Friday reiterated how dangerous that price war was because it started March 6th at the meeting in Vienna where I was and will carry through if you think about it till May 1st that's when the cuts from OPEC actually come into place so they call it the crucial seven weeks that broke the back of the market particularly of the U.S. market uh, right now. And the other thing that's very vulnerable here, I spoke to a senior trader on the phone yesterday, and he said, you know, you cannot fool the market with the 
fake numbers that are being thrown out here. There was a promise 10 days ago at the G20 uh, meeting of energy ministers that took place, that virtual meeting. They said they're going to be buying 2 million barrels a day of crude and some 200 million barrels over the next few months. Outside of China, we don't see it, Julia. So they talk about taking off 20 million barrels a day between OPEC, the U.S., Canada, Brazil, and then the purchases from the G20. Market saying, we don't believe it right now. Yeah. And also, we're flying blind on the demand front, too. So it's the triple whammy of the, the situation that we're dealing with. John, what does this mean in terms of jobs, particularly for the United States, when we're seeing prices this low? What does this mean, particularly for the shale players? Well, I, I think for Donald Trump, it was a mistake to say mission accomplished because he said, mm. I solved this trade war and I protected hundreds of thousands of jobs. We have folks like Reistad Energy, which is a consultancy, making calculations on this price range of around $20 a barrel. They're saying 140 companies will go bankrupt this year and another 400. Did you hear what I said? 400 in 2021. If you have $10 oil, which I don't think is going to hold, Julia, they're saying that number could double in 2021. So it is acute, the situation. You talked about demand. Uh, we see that the OPEC costs are just below 10 million barrels a day. The IEA shocked everyone, saying that this drop in demand is not just for April, but it'll average 23 million barrels a day through the second quarter. So what is the new normal, Julia? The new normal could be through the end of the year that we lose 9 to 10 million barrels a day, 9 to 10 percent throughout the year, which makes this correction in U.S. oil prices in particular and rebalancing very, very difficult going forward. Bankruptcies and bailouts. The two Bs, I think, for this sector going forward, based on what we're seeing. John Defterius, thank you so much for joining us on mm. that. Mm, worrying. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Canada is reeling from one of the deadliest mass shootings in its history. A gunman killed 16 people in a 12-hour rampage on Saturday in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. The 51-year-old suspect was killed in a shootout with police. Investigators are searching for a motive. And Prince Harry and Meghan Markle say they've cut off all dealings with four British tabloids after years of strained relations. In a letter, the couple have told the Daily Mail, The Sun, The Mirror and The Express to expect zero engagement and that there's real human cost to the way they go about their business. Wow. I think there's perhaps more important things going on in the world. All right, coming up later on in the show, cutting through the spin and exposing the crisis for what it is. Former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd tells me how we got into this mess and how we get out of it, more importantly. Plus, a new innovation we can all see through where perspex and protection go hand in hand. Clearly a safer way to test. We've got the details. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move live from New York. And we're still looking like a lower open to take place for U.S. stock markets this Monday as investors await fresh data on the economic damage wrought by COVID-19. New U.S. jobless claims numbers will be out Thursday, along with our first look at U.S. and European manufacturing data for April, the first full month of the COVID-19 lockdown. Consultancy McKinsey says nearly 60 million workers in the EU and the U.K. could be subject to furloughs, layoffs or wage cuts in the month ahead. It says the EU unemployment rate could almost double 
to more than 11%. In the meantime, reports say department store chain Neiman Marcus could file for bankruptcy as soon as this week. That would make it one of the most high-profile retail victims of the crisis so far. And as some European nations slowly follow Asian nations, letting businesses breathe again, those include Germany and Norway, global leaders are looking for the best way to get the world back on its feet again. Former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd joins us now via Skype. He's currently the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Kevin, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Clearly, the economic data spells out the urgency, health the crisis aside, of, of getting economies back up and running. Are you fearful and how fearful, if so, of policy mistakes being made here with the speed at which these decisions are being made? To be fair to those, uh, Julia, in decision-making positions now, um, this is an inordinately complex policy challenge. Yeah. It's the double barrel of both the public health dimensions and the economic dimensions. So, so far, uh, the complexity of this at an intellectual level, giving rise to uh, policy complexity, has been a real problem in then summoning the political capital necessary to get decisions taken and implemented. But after a slow start on the economic side, slow in convening the G7, slow in convening uh, the G20, and the French and the Saudis had to step into the breach on both those uh, institutions, it's good to see that some of the machinery now, particularly through the G20 framework, is begin, has begun to be mobilised. Uh, the work being done now uh, by the finance ministers, you mentioned it before in your earlier report, the energy ministers, having all these key economies around one table, albeit a virtual table, is a step in the right direction. One further point, though, is on the global machinery, the IMF so far, International Monetary Fund, is also doing a sound job and in incorporating much of the institutional learnings that we had from the global crisis, which I well remember 10 years ago. You know, it's interesting, in the past, we would have been talking about US leadership driving many of the kind of responses, I think, that's required when you're facing a, a global pandemic, instead of which we're challenged, I think, here in the United States, deciding how to operate in terms of reopening when a lack of testing, testing at the nation level and criticizing bodies like the World Health Organization. Where does that leave us? Well, in the past, um, what normally has happened when a crisis hits, like the global financial crisis, I was Prime Minister when that unfolded. Uh, and to give President George Bush his due, uh, President Bush stepped into the breach um, and uh, Hank Paulson was uh, delivered uh, the responsibility of dealing with the US financial system domestically. And George Bush was uh, then uh, tasked with uh, pulling together the G20 at summit level for the first time. So the world, both in that crisis and since, to it, since it, have become familiar with uh, US global leadership. Now, President Trump has a different approach. Uh, his uh, America first um, political catch cry and strategy has had a palpable effect in the way in which global institutions work or don't work. And so President Macron has stepped into the breach on the G7, um, the Saudi leadership on the G20, IMF, as I said before, functioning well. But it's been difficult because of, um, shall we say, the rising nationalism and protectionism we've seen in the core of this exercise, uh, which has been reflected in very much the postures taken by the United States itself. 
One of the other big differences between now and the financial crisis is that China, China's economy is that much more important. And when China's economy slows or reports bad data, the whole world knows about it. Kevin, there's been questions about trust in economic data, trust in the health data and the communication that we've had from China. How worried are you as, a, as someone who knows this country and the leadership incredibly well? Well, Julia, as we've discussed in this program a few times before, um, the uh, data uh, that emerges from China always has to be tested against alternative sources of data. Take the growth projections, for example, at present for this calendar year, 2020. Um, China is yet to officially revise its official numbers for the year. Uh, but plainly, uh, if you put together all the analyses we've seen from others, independent and some Chinese institutions, China will be very fortunate indeed to come out of calendar year 2020 with probably zero growth. But even Chinese institutions like CICC are now beginning to indicate very low growth uh, achievement this year. So the reality is we've got to always distill um, the official numbers put out by the Central Statistical Bureau with what we find from alternative data sources. China's economic recovery, in my judgment, uh, Julia, having looked at this economy for the last 35 years, will be patchy, uneven. It will depend on industries. It will depend on regions. It will depend on whether these are manufacturing industries or domestic service industries. But here's the big caveat on last time. Um, the problem we now have is that China's own economy and its recovery will be hampered by the massive recession we see unfolding in the rest of the world, including right. its principal economic partners. That's a big factor, and it's new. Yes, if they're producing things and no one's buying, that's going to harm their economy. The consumer in particular, for me, has been lacklustre in the daily data that we've seen from China too. And the consumer is far less important in the Chinese economy than it is in some of the developed nations like the United States, like elsewhere. How worried are you about the speed of recovery that we're capable of achieving? Exactly to your point, the whole world is impacted here. Well, as you know, this is a, um, a three or four piston global economy. Piston number one is uh, the United States. Open question. I listened carefully to your report before about double-digit American unemployment emerging. Um, two, similarly with Europe, a huge hit in the major central economies of Europe, uh, Britain, uh, the uh, French and the, uh, the German economies, um, and then the prospect of double-digit unemployment there as the year unfolds. China, um, I see at the second half of the year there will be reasonable recovery, but not sufficient to compensate for the collapsed growth in the first and second quarters. On the Chinese consumer that you mentioned before, uh, consumption does represent a high proportion of GDP now than it used to. And the one central stimulus uh, package we see emerging from the Chinese government so far are consumer coupons being sent out to individuals to encourage them uh, to lift demand. But of course, as you know, that's always calibrated with a return to normal life. So how does it all balance out in the end now that we have a Japan problem as well? I've got to say, by the time we get to the midpoint of the year, I regret to say that the IMF's projections of several uh, days ago about where we'd land with global growth by year's end may appear to be on the optimistic side. Yeah. Diplomatically put, I agree with you. Some of those pistons looking severely cracked at this stage. The question is, can we piece them together?
Kevin, great to have you with us as always. Kevin Rodgers speaking Thanks, Julia. there. Thank you. Stay safe, sir, and great to chat to you again. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where markets are open, up and running this Monday session. And we are lower as we begin, as you can see, off some 1.8% for the Dow. Energy stocks are posting steep early losses as the oil price tumbles again. As we were discussing earlier in the show, we've got U.S. crude currently down some 40%, as you can see, now trading just below $11 a barrel. This comes amid fears over demand. Storage facilities are hitting their limits too. And as John mentioned earlier, a key futures contract is expiring tomorrow. So that's also putting some degree of nervousness into the market and pressure on prices. In the meantime, New York Governor Cuomo said over the weekend that it's only half time in the state's battle with COVID-19. And new polls show a majority of Americans still fear that stay-at-home guidelines will be lifted too quickly. This I think is a reality check after two weeks of back-to-back gains on Wall Street. And as I said before, more U.S. testing is crucial here if states are to begin opening up their economies safely. That's the broader view, and it remains politically contentious, at least here in the United States. As many state governors call for more tests, Vice President Mike Pence says the country is conducting around 150,000 tests a day. But a widely discussed study by Harvard University says a minimum of 500,000 tests a day are needed to reopen the economy. My next guest thinks the United States does not have sufficient testing capabilities to reopen. Dr. John Lynch is a board member of the Infectious Diseases Society of America and Associate Medical Director at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. Dr. Lynch, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I I just gave two numbers there. Our current capacity, which is 150,000 tests a day, and some suggestion that we need, what, more than three times that. What's your view of what this country requires in terms of testing on a daily basis? Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's really important to think about this in really two contexts. One is a public health capacity, and the second one is hospital capacity. I can tell you right now, talking to colleagues around the United States, that uh, for infectious disease doctors trying to get these tests done, it is still not nearly where we need to be in order to just simply take care of patients who are presenting with signs and symptoms of uh, COVID-19. The second thing is the public health capacity, the ability to do the contact tracing is so important for controlling this as we ease the social distancing uh, back uh, is still not there either. We have to remember these tests are also have to be embedded in a program to deliver them. And that program really hasn't been well developed around the country. So just to be clear, firstly, you're saying even in hospitals, people are presenting with symptoms of COVID-19 and hospitals around the country still don't have enough tests to test those people. That's your first point. Correct. There are people presenting with probably mild illnesses or moderate illnesses where a lot of doctors don't have access to the test right now. And then your second point, and I think this is critical, is also being able to trace once we've got somebody that we've tested and they're positive, you have to be testing those that they've been in contact with and finding out who else could have this. How many tests should we be doing on average per person that we find that tests positive? Well, it really depends upon the region you live in. So here in my area of Seattle, we think that for every one person who's probably infected, they probably have three or four or five contacts, but that's in the period of social distancing. Here in Seattle, we've been 
practicing this now for quite a long time. But as those ease back, those number of contacts are probably going to increase as people return to work. So should we be having this discussion at all or should we be galvanizing at the state or at the nation state level in the United States to bump up our testing capacity? Because for me, given this conversation, there should be no reopening. We need to remain socially distant, physically distant. Yeah, the social distancing is really uh, bought us time, right, to build hospital capacity, to build up stores of PPE, to build up public health capacity. But we still lack a federal nationwide plan for how all this is going to work. Um, we need to get access to tests in a way that you don't have to see a doctor for. Um, and we need to coordinate it at a regional level and a national level so access is equitable everywhere. We can plan for reopening the country to back off and ease social distancing, but we have to do it with the recognition that these tools need to be in place in order to allow us to do that social distancing uh, backup, but also recognize that we're gonna probably need to re-engage with some level of social distancing as those tools show us that more cases are showing up. Yeah, a daily decision is gonna be needed to calibrate this based on what we see in terms of cases. I think we've all, particularly on this show, seen what other countries have done, South Korea, Taiwan, for example, Singapore, these testing sites, mobile testing sites, for example, they're popping up in places around the United States, but nothing has been done on, a, again, a nationwide level to, to, to tackle this. Are we even testing healthcare workers enough, never mind those that present with symptoms coming into hospitals? Well, you know, I can't speak for everyone in the country, but if we're not testing minimally symptomatic patients, then I think we're probably not testing healthcare workers as much as possible. Here at my facility at the University of Washington, we've made employee testing a really high priority. Um, and with that high priority in local testing, we've tested well over 4,000 employees. Um, and that's in just one city. That is not what's happening across the country. And we know this is a very high risk group that needs to be confident about the work they're doing and needs to be able to stay home when they're ill. So that's, again, part of that planning process that isn't in place. How do we provide for healthcare workers? How do we provide for first responders? And then how do we provide for the public going forward? It still remains open in terms of a national priority. Is this the message that the IDSA, obviously you're a board member, is, is giving to the White House at this moment? And is there anywhere around the country where you go, actually, judging by the numbers, the lack of cases or relative lack of cases, they are safe? Or is this just a blanket message? We're not ready. Well, I think it's, you know, it has to be applied locally. And that's one of the key things around public health in the United States and probably anywhere. But this right. message is really for the rest of the country. We need to be paying attention. Uh, our local health leaders, but our state leaders, our governors need to be engaging with the federal government around what are the next steps that are needed. That national coordination is still not there. And part of the IDSA recommendation is the establishment of a task force composed of experts in public health and infectious diseases um, in public health projects to get this work done in a coordinated fashion that is agnostic of other demands and needs. It really needs to be what's safe and effective so that we can put the tools in place to allow that social distancing to back off and to recognize this is gonna be a pattern that's gonna continue for weeks and months and maybe even a year or two to come. Yeah, and that's the message, a testing task force, a nation, White House-led testing task force to coordinate this. It's what the Defense Production Act's for. Dr. John Lynch, Great. so thank you so much for coming to uh, to join us and to talk this through. And uh, stay safe, sir. Please, you and your thank staff. You. We'll do. Thank, thank you for having you. me on. Thank you. The message You're once again. Welcome. Oh, oh, my phone's thanking me. Most welcome. <laughs> Up next.
the flat pack testing booth. Could this innovation be exactly what we were just talking about, the key to fast and safe testing? Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where you are looking at live pictures of German Chancellor Angela Merkel talking about the country's plans to reopen. And as you would expect, the message from the Chancellor this morning is that the country will remain cautious. They will be disciplined in this process that what they don't want to do, and we've been discussing it throughout the show, is risk a relapse in contagion. So a delicate, delicate balancing act here between restarting the largest economy in Europe, but also trying to mitigate the risk of a pickup in contagion. We will bring you any further details as uh, the Chancellor continues to speak. But for now, we'll move on. startup Room used to make phone booths for open plan offices. Now it's adapted the plexiglass design to create a coronavirus testing booth. As you can see there in the pictures, the three pane structure creates a barrier between healthcare workers and the patient that they are testing. Better yet, it ships flat pack and can be set up in 30 minutes. Joining us now, Brian Chen, co-founder and CEO of Room. Brian, fantastic to have you with us. Just to be clear, this is still what your company does. You just decided we can do something to help with the need for safer testing. And you developed, produced this and are now shipping it to hospitals in the country and in other countries around the world. Talk us through this decision and how quickly you moved. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, In normal times, Room is a fast-growing startup. Uh, We are reimagining the modern workplace. Our first product is a soundproof phone booth, as you mentioned, that ships flat, assembles on site. And in less than two years of actually being in business, we have over 3,000 customers. We've delivered over 10,000 booths to customers in the U.S. and Europe. Now, when the crisis hit, you can imagine our business was very much impacted. And we looked for ways... Uh, for how we could help. Now, I really think that entrepreneurs and startups have a really critical role to play in our world's response to this pandemic, right? The moment that we are in requires innovation, fast-moving creativity. And these are things that startups are really well-positioned to deliver. Uh, So, you know, you were talking earlier about the importance of testing. We saw a test booth being used in South Korea, and they've done an incredible job at scaling their testing efforts there. We saw that product adapted at Brigham and Women's Health. And we as a team looked at the product and felt that we could really repurpose our design, engineering, and supply chain capabilities to help. So uh, in a very short couple of weeks, we went from idea to first units leaving the factory. And we have a great group of hospitals that will very soon uh, be using our test booth. So uh, we've moved very quickly and very happy to, to be helping the cause. I mean, it's a phenomenal story of innovation in times of crisis, seeing what South Korea are doing and going, actually, we can adjust what we create to try and help. And, and just so that our viewers know, I believe you're giving them free to these hospitals and you've open sourced the details so that others, if they want to produce this, flat pack this and send this out themselves, they can. 
Yes, absolutely. So we, uh, you know, in the in the spirit of wanting to move quickly and get testing up and running in as many places as possible, while also protecting healthcare workers and patients who are getting tested, we decided that we would donate uh, our test booths to our initial launch partners. Uh, but as you said, you know, this is not a challenge that can be solved by a single company or even yeah. by a single country, right? We really need all hands on deck. And so we have open sourced our uh, design files so that manufacturers and makers can really contribute locally and uh, help get these test booths to as many testing centers as possible. And uh, after this initial wave of donations that we've um, kind of kickstarted, uh, we've also launched a GoFundMe campaign right. so that we can really uh, start to finance and get the word out about this test booth and, uh, and get it to as many places as possible. Yeah, I'll tweet out the GoFundMe page as well because I think this is a brilliant idea. When I saw this, I was thinking these need to be in airports, these need to be in big companies, these need to be wherever testing over the next six, 12 months is going to have to be done as we bridge the time to a vaccine. This kind of technology basically is going to be used. Where else have you had inquiries from? Because I know it's not just US-based hospitals and, and Mexico that we're talking about. You've had other inquiries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, I, I think it's it's very clear that testing is front and center in how we get back to any sense of normalcy, right? Uh, the plans are for millions of tests to be conducted in a week. So the, the need for this is tremendous. The initial partners, just to highlight, are uh, include top hospitals in the U.S., including Cedars-Sinai, uh, Boston Medical, University of Washington Medical Center, uh, as you mentioned, we have inquiries from Mexico, uh, the United Kingdom, and France. This obviously is a global pandemic uh, and it requires a global response. Uh, so um, that's why you know we've open sourced it and we'll be leveraging our global supply chain cap capabilities. And if people want to help, they can go to your GoFundMe page to give you money. Just give me a sense of what one of these costs, just so that people understand. Yeah. Uh, so in normal times, it's, um, you know, our business, our core business is selling uh, these modular purpose built infrastructure solutions to offices. And what we really try to do is bring costs down so that um, as many companies as possible can use our products on a regular basis. So we've really built this expertise in cost effective, scalable solutions. And we've applied that same logic to the test booth uh, that, that we're, we're launching. We expect this to be somewhere between $1,500 in terms of costs. Wow. Thank you so much for your innovation, for your team's hard work and for what you're doing. We. Um, we all thank you and good luck with it and stay in touch, please, Brian. Thank and like me. I said, I'll tweet out the GoFundMe link as well so people can help if they, if they choose to. Brian Chen, co-founder and CEO of Room. Thank you and stay safe. All right, after the break, things that make you go Zoom, a safe way to help seniors living in care homes, plus the wedding crasher. Guess who showed up after this couple made their vows on video? <laughs> That's next, stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As hospitals and care homes restrict visitors or ban them altogether in this pandemic, one place has found a way to work a way around the rules. Anna Stewart reports on the Adopt a Grandparent program, which is making life a lot less lonely for some very important people. I've got a 
74-year-old Sheila and five-year-old Freya have been keeping each other company over video. They aren't related. They're part of a program called Adopt a Grandparent that puts virtual volunteers in touch with care home residents. These two hit it off immediately. For residents like Sheila, whose family can't visit her at the moment, this new little companion has become another member. The program's organisers say interest has skyrocketed, with over 70,000 volunteers signing up in the last four weeks. It's been absolutely amazing and so heartwarming. We never expected anything like the numbers of volunteers we've received. And people from all over the world, um, Australia, America, Greece, India, Africa. And what better way to fight loneliness than with a bit of dressing up with new friends? Where did your bunny ears go? This bun. Oh, my bunny ears are like yours. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. <laughs> I think everyone benefiting from that. And a Zoom wedding with a difference when a surprise guest popped up at the video ceremony for an NHS nurse, Hayley Skelton, and her husband, Harvey. It was none other than the British singer, Ellie Goulding. Take a listen. To sing your first dance song, we present Ellie Goulding. Is Ellie Goulding? So congratulations, Harvey and Hayley, and uh, you're both heroes, and we all love you. Two reminders there to spread some love and happiness in incredibly difficult times, and for all those postponing their weddings at this moment, we know a few of them on our show too. I'm sure it will be worth the wait. Take care of yourselves and each other, please, and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.